Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined once again by two co-hosts, Kathleen Vandewell. Hi, everyone. And Grant. Of Troy, or possibly Egypt, or, you know, Sparta, someplace. (laughs) He's saying that for a reason, isn't he, Kathleen? Yes, that is because our opera is set in Egypt. What are we going to listen to today? (laughs) Well, we're mostly going to talk about and listen to a few excerpts from Richard Strauss's and Hugo von Hofmannsthal's Die Ägyptische Helena. Uh, you know, that, that I find the word Egypt in German to be difficult, so we may simply use the translation, the Egyptian Helen. I certainly will. I'm not going to risk trying to say that. <laughs> it was a risk, <laughs> and I may have failed miserably. At any rate, this is not as well known as a lot of the other collaborations that Richard Strauss and Hugo von Hofmannsthal have created in the opera world, most famous of which is probably Rosenkavalier. I've seen that one. Yes, you even recorded an episode, episode 93, with me about that. And Kathleen, you and I recently did Die Frau ohne Schatten. Yes, that's our most recent one together and one we really enjoyed, I think. Yep, that's episode 109. And if you really want a, a kick of doing Strauss and Hoffmannstahl, you could also listen to episode 97, where the second half of it is, is a discussion with Ariadne Alfnaxos. And episode 52 was Arabella, 1933. That was the last one the two of them did. In fact, Hoffmannstahl did not even live to see his libretto complete because he always would do revisions back and forth with Strauss. So the opera we're doing today, The Egyptian Helen, is in fact Hoffmannstahl's final completed libretto for Richard Strauss. So of all the operas that they worked on together, how many of them do we have left that we haven't done an opera for everyone on? Only Electra, which was the first one that they did together. And it was a little different from these others because it was a pre-existing play that Hoffmannstahl had written. And then he got together with Strauss. And they worked a little bit to to smooth it out to make it work for an opera. But Electra, that remains. So I think it's time for us to turn to this particular opera, the Egyptian Helen. And by the way, this is the Helen of history, Helen of Troy. But I do not associate her with Egypt. Grant, why are we in Egypt? And in fact, why is she called Helen of Troy? That's not where (laughs) she's from either. Good question. Helen is the mythological slash legendary daughter of Zeus. And she is one of four siblings, all of whom have stories in the mythology. And she is the most beautiful woman in the world. In the beginning, she is the wife of Menelaus, king of Sparta. Menelaus is going to be one of our characters in this opera. He's a piece of work. (laughs) Admittedly, so is she. Maybe, Maybe that seems about right. But then there is the famous inciting incidents of the Trojan War, which, to summarize as briefly as I possibly can, involve her leaving her husband, perhaps at the behest of the gods, running away with this young and rather foppish chap named Paris Mm. to the city of Troy, prompting Menelaus to get all of his buddies, all of Helen's other suitors, all of the other people who wanted to marry her, had sworn a solemn vow that if she was abducted, they would all go and recover her. There was a huge war, the city was sacked, and it just led to a great deal of catastrophe and chaos. Helen is eventually seized, and she returns to Sparta, or at least 
That's one version of the story. So we get all this from Homer, don't we? It's Homer, and in fact, a lot of early sources, the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey are the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but they're also connected in with this large body of work that gets referenced throughout the Greek corpus, uh, including from things that are very old and may in fact be as old or even older than some of the materials we read in Homer. Yeah, the the best modern day equivalent is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is what it makes me think of sometimes, okay. where <laughs> you have these original source materials and, well, you've used really famous source materials, let's say, rather than original. You've got Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Helen appears in both a lot more in the Iliad, but she's also in the Odyssey. And then you have all these writers who come later who want to elaborate on both her story and everyone else's story. So there's all this fan fiction yeah, <laughs> that, that yeah. shows up. And Helen in Egypt, um, or just Helen, is a play by Euripides that is the main source material for von Hoffmannsthal's libretto. And it is very much this. It's a late play for Euripides, and it is is a, a telling of sort of what was Helen doing when we weren't looking at her. Oh, that's always a good way to start a fan fiction. Could you just briefly remind us who Euripides is? Sure. He is one of the most famous of the, the Golden Age Greek playwrights of the 5th century. He is probably most famous for his play, The Trojan Women, or Electra, speaking of Electra. Yeah. Um, he is a fascinating figure who we will definitely return to later. This is one, one of his very late plays, and he was very anti-war, and he uses the characters often of legend and myth to put forward his anti-war messaging. Yeah, Euripides was the greatest Greek playwright. Sophocles fans, fight me. Oh, dear. <laughs> what about us Aeschylus fans over here? <laughs> we're gonna i'm gonna come to blows now i love euripides too he is he's the og wow <laughs> he is wow so there's a lot of rich source material here for any author to choose from to develop a new work of art based on these familiar characters and familiar situations. And the line between fan fiction and a reboot is kind of an imaginary one when you get down to it. The way that these characters work both in comics and in mythology, and I think that those are very good analogies for one another in many cases, is that they are reinvented. Who kills Spider-Man's Uncle Ben depends on which iteration. They just keep having a different person kill him each time. And a lot of things in Greek mythology are like that, where there's a key event that happens but exactly who did it and where gets changed version to version. Thank God they didn't come up with the concept of a multiverse back then. Oh boy, that would have been a little much. <laughs> there are a bunch of sources that assert in one fashion or another that Helen was never in Troy and that the Helen of Troy was actually a phantom, an image, an eidolon in <laughs> the Greek language. Well, thank goodness we all agree that there are no spoilers in opera because, spoiler. Yes, I, I, <laughs> it gets very complicated in this particular opera. But we don't exactly know where this idea of saying that Helen wasn't actually in Troy and it wasn't actually all her fault in the way that we imagine originates from. But we do know that it comes in some very earlier important sources, including Herodotus, the father of what we would call history, as well as the lyricist Sescorus. Sesochorus was someone who wrote originally a poem talking about how awful Helen was and was supposedly 
blinded by the semi-divine Helen for his slander of her. Ooh. And in response to a vision of the truth of the matter, which is that she was never in Troy, of course, he wrote another ode to her talking this time about how wonderful and perfect and virtuous she was. And supposedly, he then regained his sight. Oh, wow. Uh, a corollary tradition to this is that Homer refused to recant his uh, slander of her <laughs> and remained blind, and that's why Homer was the blind poet. Yeah, and there is far too too much to get into here, but I just briefly would add that the changing attitudes towards Helen and her role in the Trojan War, the different stories put about her PR almost. Yeah, they her shift reputation. as. <laughs> yeah, her reputation, it it shifts as shifting attitudes towards women changed, mm -hmm. yeah. as the cult of Helen. Helen was at sometimes worshipped as a goddess, um, as you can see from, from Grant's story there. That went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the changing attitudes towards both Helen as a, as a figure and also women more generally, I think partly at least account for why we get so many different treatments and some revisionism when it comes to the Helen story. Notably, Euripides himself, in an earlier play, The Trojan Women, presents an extremely different vision of Helen than he presents in this play. And as we'll talk later, there's some question about how tongue-in-cheek he is about making a very innocent Helen in this play and a very seductive Helen in his earlier work. And the question of irony hangs over a lot of this stuff about Helen. One of the most interesting works is the sophist Gorgias, who famously wrote a defense of Helen, where he explained why, even though she was taken to Troy, even though she betrayed her husband, she didn't do anything wrong. And he writes this elaborate defense of her, explaining that if it was love, then it was actually a sickness. And if it came from the gods, then you can't blame her because it was the gods. And if she was taken by force, then... You can't blame her for that. And if she was simply persuaded by words, then, well, that's because words are powerful. And that was the whole point of this speech. He wasn't actually saying that he thought Helen was a good person. He thought Helen was the worst person who'd ever lived. And his point is that words are powerful enough to defend even the worst person who ever lived. And so it was a rhetorical flex where even though he was praising her, he was praising her with the assumption and bedrock of the whole thing being that he was trying to show off the power of oratory and rhetoric, the power of the word. Well, you know what else is powerful? Music. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I think it's time to actually open our opera here. And after all this talk of Helen and even her husband Menelaus, I need to let everyone know we do not open on this troubled couple. We, in fact, open on a scene of another character entirely. Aithra. Who, who is this Aithra? Aithra is a sorceress. She is a demigoddess in some uh, mythological traditions. She is the, the mother of the Pleiades, I believe, in some oh. traditions. So she is, a, she is a known figure. Probably her most obvious connection and why I think she's showing up in this opera is that she is a handmaid of Helen who went to Troy with her in Homeric tradition. So oh. I think that's where we're getting her as a, as a person in this play. I will say that she is not an important figure at all in Euripides' play. She is a, a, an invention of von Hoffmannshaw. 
Yeah, she's she's absolutely key in this. And she is one of these people who has, uh, I think in my research, I turned up six different names that mm -hmm. equivalent characters to her have in various parts of the tradition. And it just goes to show that there is some compositing going on. This figure who teaches Helen the power of potions while mm -hmm. she sojourns in Egypt on her return to The potions Sparta. will figure prominently and importantly in this opera. We have Ithra on the stage in the beginning, and she's letting us know about her relationship with the sea god Poseidon. She's pining for him. She's set a meal. She's laid a table. This is our opening scene. And she's wondering, where is my beloved? Seems like rhetorical questions, but in fact, someone answers her. A very curious and unusual character in any opera, play, or movie. The omniscient seashell. <laughs> I have to say that this, more than anything, just like smacks of von Hoffmannstahl to me. Um, <laughs> if you have listened to our Die Frau an Schatten episode, Von Hofmannschall is deeply steeped in both Greek mythology and traditional fairy tale. So they blend a lot in his librettos, which I find fascinating yes. because obviously a lot of Greek mythology contains the origins of later folk and fairy tales. But this right. is to me just like straight out of a, it's like the Little Mermaid suddenly appears here. Yeah, it variously is translated as the seashell, the omniscient seashell, the muscle, because it looks like muscle in German. This muscle is very, um, not only is she omniscient, but she begins by being very soothing. She? The muscles have gender? I mean, I guess they're animals, right? Okay, I'm sorry. She's sung by a contralto, a woman, so that's why I say she. She's very compassionate. She cares very much for Ithra, and she's trying to console her. Don't worry about Poseidon. You're okay. It's wonderful. Here are some doves. They're greeting you on behalf of Poseidon, and Ithra's really not calmed down. And ultimately, she demands to know where Poseidon is, and the seashell will solemnly say, with the Ethiopians. This never comes up again. If you know your Homer, you may be aware that with the Ethiopians means way far away from here. <laughs> it's used as a, as a shorthand for at the ends of the world. It's uh, where Zeus wanders off to when uh, Hera can break into his stuff and mess with them. In other words, the ends of the earth. So... One of the servants observes that Ithra is very upset and says, I will run and get a bottle of lotus juice for you. The magical properties of the lotus show up in the Odyssey, where the lotus eaters live in a land where all care and worry is mm -hmm. forgotten. And you have the, the lotuses and you don't worry about anything. She's, she's offering her drugs. It's drugs. Yeah, it's to sedate her. And she's, she just says, I just don't want it. No, thanks. I don't want it. I don't want it. Well, in sh pretty short order, the omniscient seashell, the muscle, <laughs> changes the subject. She She's getting a vision. Yes, yeah, she has gotten a vision. And she says there is a ship. And the most beautiful woman in the world is on that ship, Helen of Troy, or Helena, as she's known in this opera. And Menelaus, her husband, is about to murder her. And Aethra, we are not, it's not really clear in the opera why Aethra has a stake in preventing this from happening, but she decides to conjure a storm, which really connects her once again to that Poseidon-like magical abilities. And she's associated with 
the old man of the sea or triton or mm -hmm. various other nereids or sea gods in different versions of this she's she's a a witchy woman who's got a thing with the sea yes and is very fond of helen yes and she's very fond reason. of helen for some reason i think it's probably von hoffmanshall connecting the ithra as handmaiden origin story and anyway so she decides i i'm gonna stop this for sisterhood whatever and she conjures a giant storm to distract Menelaus from his murderous impulses and shipwrecks the passengers who are, of course, totally fine. A shipwreck is just a fast way of getting to shore, apparently. So let's, let's listen to a little bit of this interaction between the omniscient seashell and Ithra. Ithra is the soprano and the seashell is sung by the contralto voice. opera for everyone and we have just heard a clip from Richard Strauss's The Egyptian Helen and in that clip we had a seashell who knows all sees all who has told Ithra that there is a woman in trouble a man is about to murder her and it is the husband of Helen of Troy about to murder her on a ship she's saved by a conveniently conjured storm and they end up on the land where Ithra is nearby. And just to note here, I've said before, von Hoffmannstahl departs quite 
a bit from the Euripides text originally, but specifically here, there is a shipwreck that gets Menelaus into Egypt, but the entire framing narrative is quite different. Helen has been hiding out in Egypt and the the king of Egypt at that time wants to marry her and she has received a of course, message. Everyone wants to marry yeah, her. Yeah, <laughs> that Menelaus has never returned to Sparta, so he is presumed to be dead. But coincidentally, he gets shipwrecked on her island and he oh. has Helen on board his ship. He hides Helen in a cave and goes to land to sort of see like, you know, what's the situation in Egypt here? And then sees Helen and he's like, there are two Helens. What's going on? It's the multiverse. Exactly. It's the, it's the <laughs> Spider-Man meme. Um, <laughs> so the framing narrative is very different. Von Hoffenstahl makes it much more feminine by focusing on Ithra, which I think is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. And also focuses more on the fact that although it will be said that Helen has been in Egypt this whole time and it was just a phantom. There's also the the sort of strangeness of the narrative of Menelaus has a Helen. He's gotten her somewhere and this is her. Hmm. So how how the the narrative kind of uh, resolves those tensions, we will soon see. <laughs> but very, very different framing narrative, I would say. from yeah. With the important distinction that in this, it's real Helen who's with him. And in that, yeah, it's exactly. imaginary Helen who's with him, which will be very important later on in the play. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, when they enter this hall where we had seen Ithra previously getting ready with a meal to receive Poseidon, who never showed up, never does show up in this story, he is actually not walking with her hand in hand. It's more like he's he's dragging her in. I mean, not on the ground, but yeah. pulling on her arm. And she, he's he's pulling Helen in asserting his dominance, taking charge of the situation. Yes. So his show of dominance also harkens back to another Euripides play I mentioned, The Trojan Women, which is all Mm. about what happens to the women in Troy directly after the fall of Troy, including Helen. What's important to note for our purposes is that Helen is no longer a queen. She is no longer Menelaus's rightful wife at this point. Mm-hmm. What the Trojan women makes clear is that she is given to Menelaus as his spear bride, otherwise known as his slave. And mm-hmm. all the women are given in slavery to the main characters of the Greek side of the Trojan War. And she is she is not his equal, not that she necessarily was before because Greek society, but she's very much treated now as a slave character rather than a queen. Yeah, which is why he feels completely entitled to be killing her, as we saw through the omniscient seashell. But she is trying to win back her marriage and has a silver tongue, as we will see. Yes, beautiful woman to look at. Beautiful, beautiful words. Because she is brilliant. That's part of the character, uh, especially in Homer, where she does have this very subservient role to Menelaus, but she is at the same time in every way his superior. She is more beautiful, she is more brilliant. On a couple of occasions, they are both figuring something out at the same time, Mm. or should I say, he is figuring (laughs) something out, we are told by the narrator, and she has the answer already. Yeah. Mm. Because she is much, much faster than him, and much more clever and powerful. Yeah, and it's clear in both Homer and Euripides and other treatments of her that it's her ability to seduce any man. It's not just her physical appearance, but it's a part of her intelligence. I mean, she 
practically seduces Priam in not a physical way, but and she almost seduces Hector, who is pretty mm-hmm. unseducible. But also the Trojan women is largely given up to speeches of her defending herself. It's basically a law court play where she is put on trial for her crimes and she responds incredibly eloquently. I will say there is very, very little eloquence from any of the male characters with the exception of Odysseus in the Trojan women, but the women, they have much to say and Helen more than any. Makes me want to go back and read that. Well, anyway, we are in Ithra's hall with Helen and Menelaus. Menelaus being strong and taking charge and Helen a little disheveled. She's beautiful, tiny bit disheveled from, you know, shipwreck. But he says, where am I? That was a clip of husband and wife, or husband and slave, Menelaus and Helen in Ithra's palace. And just at the end there, we see Helen displaying those qualities that Kathleen was talking about, where she is self-possessed, she is calm, he is angry at her when she says, look, there's wonderful food here, we should eat together. And he says, we will never eat again together. She says, my dear, a man and his wife, I was taught that we should share a table and share a bed. He doesn't, he doesn't take that well. But he's into it. I think Menelaus, like one of the things that is never unclear is that he still finds her beautiful and he's still entranced by her. He talks a lot about your bed was down below and mine was in the stars on the deck trying to avoid temptation. He's clearly still tempted by her. And she knows it. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. He is in many ways a creature of just masculine urge and instinct. 
both he and, in fact, his, his brother Agamemnon have this trait that they're frequently just uh, sputtering with rage <laughs> or lust or indignation and... Well, those are the three emotions that they've got. But basically, like, <laughs> rotating between those. Yeah. And, I, you know, an important thing to note is that this play, as with many post-Trojan War pieces, is about homecoming or the attempt to have a homecoming mm -hmm. um, and the failure of homecoming often. Speaking of Agamemnon, Agamemnon's homecoming, which hangs in the air over yeah. all of these plays, is that yeah. he came home to a wife who murdered him and had supplanted him in her bed with someone else. So there is also a sense from Menelaus that he has that in his mind, that is this woman going to do what her sister did? Right. Well, Helen's not thinking that. Helen is simply thinking, I need to reestablish my position as queen and wife to this husband. And I mean, in a lot of ways, this is a very romantic opera in that outlook. Um, I could just mention that some people, it wasn't designed that way originally, but some people consider this to be the third of the three marriage operas that Strauss did. The first being Die Frau ohne Schatten, which truly celebrates marriage and the purpose of marriage. And then there's Intermezzo, which is a comedy that he writes, where he writes his own libretto. Hoffmannstahl was not involved with that one. <laughs> I mean, you could tell if you watch them. Die Frau ohne Schatten, very complex, a lot of going on, a lot of symbolism. The Egyptian Helen, by the way, they started out trying to actually write an operetta, a light comedy. And the only thing that remains of the comedy is the, <laughs> the omniscient seashell. seashell. <laughs> a little bit the elves that we haven't met yet. There's a little bit of cuteness there. But yeah, I don't just don't think Hoffmannstahl was constitutionally able to write a comedy. But then this one is also very marriage focused. It's going to underline these, well, what Strauss referred to as these, this bourgeois setting. And he didn't mean it as an insult. He meant it as an, an ordinary everyday middle class couple where marriage is the rock, the center of their world. And he and Hoffmannstahl were okay both with that message coming through in their works. Because, you know, We've all had things that we've dealt with in our relationships, and who among us hasn't had a problem where one of our partners has gone and resulted in the destruction of numerous cities and mm. the death and enslavement of everyone she ever loved? Greek demigods, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Helen. She's going to let us know how she values her relationship with her husband, and he's not there. He's remembering this whole Paris incident. So Paris is kind of trouble. The Iliad does not take a kind view to Paris, nor do most versions of the story. Some people have come up with all sorts of reasons why Paris would have been capable of his one great act in the war, which was killing Achilles by shooting him in the, um, is it the leg, foot, something? I believe it's Achilles' heel. Oh, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> so Paris is the one who was given the choice between three goddesses. Well, strictly speaking, he was supposed to be assessing their beauty, but nobody cares about that. It was all about the bribery. And the <laughs> goddess of power offered him power. The goddess of wisdom offered him wisdom. And the goddess of love offered him Helen. Mm. And Paris being Paris, he chose love 
it's sort of a little flip of the Solomon story one finds in the Old Testament, where he does choose wisdom, and it works out better that way. But this fellow, he chooses love. He uh, marries Helen, and by marries, I mean grabs her from her home palace and runs away with her, and precipitates a massive war in which he and his entire family are killed. But in our revisionist narrative here of Helen in Egypt, there is an important note, which is that if we're, we're saying that he didn't actually ever take Helen, he took a phantom version of Helen. So that is von Hoffmannsthal and Euripides' contention, that Helen herself mm. never went with him, that she hid in Egypt while the war was on, but that he took a phantom. And the reason that he was tricked into taking a phantom was that uh, Hera especially was uh, a little upset that she was not chosen by Paris as the, the winner of the goddess beauty contest. Yeah. I mean, I do have to say, if you're going into a goddess beauty contest with a goddess of beauty, it feels like you shouldn't have sour grapes over losing, but... Yeah, I've always thought that. <laughs> They're a very competitive lot. Well, <laughs> the husband and wife, as they're negotiating with each other in this scene, Menelaus remembers Paris, which lets him confront Helen directly with her infidelity to him. She reminds him, my lord. You are a fortunate man. You're still alive. And I am your wife and I am here. And he's he's not okay with that. He's but you caused all of us men to go fight for you, kill one another, kill families, ruin the city of Troy. For all of that, for all of my comrades who died, I came to punish you by killing you tonight. And she piles on the charm with him, absolutely trying to calm him down. And he is not willing to be calmed, even as she said, there is no other man for me. I love you. I'm all yours. She says this as he is threatening her with the dagger that Menelaus killed Paris with. In most accounts of Greek mythology, Menelaus does not, in fact, kill Paris, but that seems to be the case in this version that he has killed Paris with Paris's own dagger. Yes. Which he now threatens his wife with. Yes. And in telling her of all of her crimes, he brings up an important character that we only see at the very end, their daughter. He says, I can't raise a daughter with you as an example of womanhood. I must be rid of you. I must avenge all the people who've died. Yeah, and, and Hermione, the daughter, is is often one of the, the worst charges that's laid at Helen's door, that she not only left her husband, but she left her only child. Also, that there's a certain amount of um, failure on Helen's part, that she was never able to give him a son. She only gave him a daughter. Mm. So as we talked about Strassen von Hoffmannsthal, they, they write a lot about marriage, they care a lot about marriage, but they also write a lot about, they write a lot about children and, and having children as an integral part of a marriage. And I think it's very important that Menelaus pulls out Hermione as sort of his trump card. There is a lot of interesting stuff about Hermione as a character too. She features in this cinematic universe. Yes. <laughs> in one instance, she was going, she was the, the promised bride of Achilles from the Iliad fame. She ultimately marries Achilles and Neoptolemus who then goes and tries to avenge his father and gets killed. And there's all there's there's a never ending story for these characters. And there's so much rich material. But Hermione is is often 
shown as sort of a, a motherless daughter, which is a part of the the break in nature that that Helen has occasioned. She has gone against nature by leaving her husband and also leaving her child. Yeah. And Helen is not shamed by this. She persists. She says, just look at me and remember that I love you and that you are the man I chose of all the suitors I had. You are my husband. You are the one. Just forget all the badness in the past and focus on me. I'm going to play a clip of this conversation. And the very last thing Helen says is, forget what has happened and kiss me again. opera for everyone and we're listening to the Egyptian Helen music by Richard Strauss and the libretto by the inimitable Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Well, Helen, Helen of Troy, has just told her husband, forget what has happened and kiss me again. And Menelaus keeps telling us, keeps singing, I must do this thing. I must kill her. This is what justice demands. But he's as we see probably from his expression or the way that he keeps stopping when he's about to slit her throat, mm. he is swayed. He sees how beautiful she is. And Menelaus, for for all his status as the king of Sparta, he's always struck me as a character who is deeply swayable. <laughs> he isn't a character who has his own solid convictions very much. He's either swayed by his, his elder brother Agamemnon or his beautiful, seductive wife. And in this case... She may not have won yet, but I think she's she's gaining ground. I think she believes that as well. Nevertheless, the scene ends with him holding a dagger to strike her in the throat, but he just can't make the move. End scene, and we have a new scene with Ithra and some new characters. Yes, we um we meet some elves. Question yeah. mark. 
<laughs> who once again seem to appear from a, a different kind of legend or a different time period. Are there um, not elves in Euripides? I, I don't remember elves in Euripides. We we were aiming for operetta here, remember? Yeah. It, Lighthearted. Very <laughs> operetta-ish. <laughs> Aethra has some some deep feelings about Helen. We've already seen her conjure a storm to save her life. Mm-hmm. And she's not going to let Helen get knifed on her watch. So she pulls up her little army of elves. For some reason, she has those. And she sends them off to distract Menelaus so he doesn't kill Helen. I would say the, the thing this most reminds me of is Shakespeare, because you mm-hmm. have the the sort of Midsummer Night's Dream of it all. Mm. The play is set in Athens, has a Helena character, has characters with Greek names, but also we have we have lotus juice, we have little troublemaker fairies and things like that. I think that's kind of the vibe that von Hoffmannsthal is aiming for here. Turn him, twist him, blink and chirp, turn him, twist him, bark and strut, cackle and snort, blow and ban, hassle him, pound him, flit, 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 or so goes our translation. <laughs> and I'll just say, yeah, that that seems very Shakespeare silly elves, silly fairies. Well, we're going to turn our attention back to this scene where he is trying to strike her with this knife. And we're going to hear her say, all right, without hesitation, kill me. And as he's holding this knife ready to slit her throat, he says, oh, grief makes her lovely. Her neck is stretched out as if meeting the steel. And she's like, yeah, do it. Go ahead. If you're going to do it, just do it. I mean, everybody's got their kink. (laughs) And then we hear the elves. Let's listen to how this scene plays out because it is unusual. but they aren't just cute voices. They're really taunting Menelaus. Elves in these fairy stories are oftentimes silly and funny and mischievous and completely lethal. And specifically what they do here is they really mess with Menelaus's head. They say, Paris is here. Here stands Paris. I mean, who else could he vent his rage on more than his wife than Paris? 
and Menelaus is like, Paris, do the dead walk around and demand to be killed again? And they're like, yeah, we're Paris. We want to win Helen again. We're here to mess things up for you. It's really very odd, but it really enrages Menelaus. And he runs off chasing after the vision, the Eidolon, we might even say, of Paris. Tell us about this word Eidolon that you keep using. There is a idea in many ancient cultures that gods are not just in one physical place at a time. They can manifest in all sorts of different places. And this sometimes gets transferred down to non-godlike figures where you have visions or phantoms of people who can be in multiple places. Sometimes this works in a magical communication kind of way, but oftentimes, as in this case, it is used as a means of diversion or distraction or other manner of deception. And in a metaphorical sense, it's useful because we get to play with doubling, with doppelgangers. In this sense, we get to play with good Helen and bad Helen. Mm. And she is split in two, and all of her bad qualities are phantom qualities that can fade away, and all the good qualities will remain in the faithful wife. A very good, once again, PR, public relations setup for, for Helen. And there is this kind of interesting question here about what is real and what is not real. Because once you've introduced there's a real Helen and there's a vision of Helen, or there's a real Paris or a vision of Paris, you get into the place where is the person who's talking, who yeah. is Helen, who wears Helen's clothes, has Helen's voice, is that Helen? And that hangs over all of this. And this echoes back to the way Helen appears in the Odyssey, where pretty much the first thing out of her mouth is, shall I lie or tell the truth? Mm. And that sets the tone for everything that we see. Mm. So as we've said, Menelaus very busy with his little elf idol on Paris people. Helen is left behind. And what we get for the first time is a meeting between these two characters that are clearly the two important women in the play. We've, we've had Helen off dealing with a murderous husband, but Isra <laughs> has just been sort of looking over, but she hasn't introduced herself as it were. But now Helen is left and she sort of collapses into a chair, which turns out to be Ithra's throne. Yeah. And Ithra comes forward and introduces herself, basically. And, and Helen says, who are you? Where am I? And Ithra says, you're my guest. You are in Poseidon's house and you are my guest. And Grant, I'm sure you have a few words you could say on the importance of hospitality to Greek culture. Yes, in Greek culture, as in fact, many ancient and even traditional cultures to this day, hospitality is one of the greatest and foremost of virtues. It is important here and even more important in the Euripides play. Yes, and, and the true original sin that Paris commits is violating hospitality, Menelaus's hospitality, by taking his wife. You can't eat at someone's table and then steal from them. So her words of greeting to Helen, I think, are, are very important to set the scene. She also expresses that she, she's very much on Helen's side and says very some, clearly. some very yeah. spiteful things about how horrible Menelaus is and says so she hates him. And the seashell, the, the, the muscle, joins in too and, and says, we've got him running around like crazy. So we have some time here where, where we can talk, us girls. Well, and they do what girls will sometimes do. And they, uh, they do a little beauty parlor action. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, my dear, you have salt stains on you and your hair. Let's fix up your hair a bit. And 
they... Girl, you look like you were in a shipwreck. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Oops. <laughs> and and then Helen looks in the mirror at her own reflection and says, this is how I used to look when I first met my husband. And he carried me to the bridal chamber. Oh, I'm so beautiful. Do I have to die so young? So this is the first time we're hearing any regret about, we're hearing, I mean, who knows what was going through her head, but we're hearing any regret about his intention to kill her. But Ithra says, no, 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 you will not die. You will live. Drink this. Just drink this. And says no more about what the contents are of the cup that she's handing over to Helen, but just drink this. And after she she does drink the, the lotus juice, it forms this bond between the two of them, this experience. And there's mm-hmm. this wonderful line where they say together, stronger than warriors, richer than kings are two women who trust each other, which is a very uh, foreign sentiment, I would say, to our source material, but is much more modern a sentiment. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. feminist, one might even venture to say, but does fit well with this because the men are uniformly almost untrustworthy, but, but mm-hmm. two women together, they are asserting if they can band together, then perhaps they can survive the evil that men may do. Right. They Right preceding that, they complement one another, and then together they solidify that bond by saying we are strong stronger than warriors richer than kings we help each other we trust each other that is what makes us strong that trust yeah because the the broken trust is is part of the problem that menelaus is dealing with yes and this is very unusual there's very few instances in any mythology of two women characters banding together you know you do not see penelope and circe forming an alliance against odysseus but wouldn't that have been fun (laughs) Well, Helen is pleased with all of this. She looks at herself in the mirror, confidently, admiringly saying, who could possibly kill this gorgeous vision? Me, Helen. And Ithra seconds that.
This is Opera for Everyone, and we are listening to the Egyptian Helen. And Helen is having a little sisterly bonding time with Ithra, the Enchantress, who has said, we are strong women. These two strong women are thinking about a man, and that is Menelaus, Helena's husband, and he is out chasing a phantom. He has a sword in hand, and he is going to slay Paris once more, or so he imagines. Yes, and while they are thinking of this man, they're also thinking about how to beautify Helen and make her, when when Menelaus returns, that she's as, as tempting as she can possibly be. So Ithra gives her a soothing draft so that her anxiety is calmed and says, you know what, honey, we're going to just, we're going to come up with a plan so he doesn't slit your throat. We're going to make you look pretty. And as soon as he comes back, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. Yeah, she's the woman with the lotus juice, for sure. <laughs> she with the lotus juice has a lot of power. Yeah. And meanwhile, we've got Ithra's elves. And the elves are sort of weird, is the first <laughs> and most important thing to be said about them. They remind me a little bit of the way that the Furies operate in certain, uh, mm. these like harassing spirits that mm-hmm. exist in Greek mythology. But in this case, they're a source of trickery and distraction, hearkening back to our discussions of elves and fairies as these deceptive creatures. (laughs) But they are also, to some extent, a manifestation of Menelaus's psychological turmoil. At the end of the day, this is an opera about a relationship in trouble. And this is an opera about how do we or can we forgive each other? How do we or can we get past the things that we remember and ultimately is the road to reconciliation one best tread by engaging in pretty fictions and clever deceptions or one that includes the unvarnished and sometimes painful truth that is the heart of the matter here in this story Hoffmannstahl would give you an a plus i suspect (laughs) yeah but the but the elves would not the elves think that uh trickery (laughs) is the right answer and honesty is overrated and we're mostly just here for a lark. Yeah, well, I mean, remember, this was meant to be an operetta, a light piece of music and storytelling. And there's a little bit of that remaining here in the first act, not so much in the second act that we'll, we'll get to shortly. Meanwhile, Ithra continues to work on these pretty deceptions. She's returned Helen to her youthful beauty. Ithra's given her her very best dress to put on. She's lounging and in fact falling asleep on Ithra's bed, and Menelaus returns a little out of it from chasing a phantom with his sword. But Ithra's going to soothe him and calm him and explain to him why everything is really okay and why he doesn't need to be angry at all. And this is the first time Menelaus has met or seen Ithra too. Just like we have this moment where Helen says, what is this strange magical place and who are you? We have Menelaus have a repeat of that moment, which is interesting because we're almost halfway through this opera. And (laughs) this is the first time that he's encountered one of our main characters. So he has the same reaction. He says, what is this strange, strange island of horrors? And who are you? In a scene that to me is very reminiscent, actually, of of The Tempest, where you have Prospero sending the, the humans on these wild goose chases around the island to keep them occupied. And you have Ariel as sort of that elf character. It's a it's a similar feeling here. Yeah. And yeah. Caliban, to an extent, is doing some of the same, like, yeah. very Yeah, Hoffenstahl really does pull from a variety of sources, but he has that sort of Shakespearean tinge to him a lot. And, and The Tempest in particular, 
it feels to me like a major influence mm -hmm. on this, the whole, like, getting shipwrecked so you yeah. can work out your psychological baggage. <laughs> so he he sits down, he says, all right, you need to give me the skinny. What's going on here? And so she says, let me soothe you. Let me put your mind at rest about your wife. And Ithra begins to weave a story. Yes, she tells him secretly, the gods took care of you and they created a phantom creature, a gossamer spirit, the kind they use to fool mortal men. Not really meant to fool you directly, but meant to fool Paris. This play very quickly gets into what is real, what is not real. One of the interesting discussions is if you stage this, what do you present as more or less real through costuming and lighting and other decisions? Because it really matters what mm -hmm. is real and isn't real. And also, it's unclear. Unclear in the libretto, certainly unclear to Menelaus, and to a certain extent, unclear to Helen herself, yeah. uh, who ends up in a certain amount of self-doubt about all of this. And all of this is necessary, of course, to, to bring us to the ultimate conclusion. And Aithra is this interesting character who does see and understand, but is a bit of a cipher because she is a manipulating force and not necessarily someone who is reflective in a way that we, the audience, can understand. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, the nature of truth and the importance of truth here, this is the first time we really encounter this in the opera. And I think that Ithra, at least, seems to be of the opinion that in her sort of semi-divine marriage counseling here, <laughs> that weaving the pretty <laughs> fiction is more important, that truth is overrated almost, that Absolutely. she sees that Menelaus is never going to get past the fact that his wife left him. So there has to be another explanation. And we've seen versions of this in other Euripides plays. In the Trojan Women, Helen says, I was led by the goddess Aphrodite. She says, how was I supposed to say no to a goddess? Which honestly is a fairly good, mm -hmm. is a fairly good defense. And here, it, they take it a step further and say, not only is it the will of the gods, but the gods, without my permission or consent, made a phantom version of me and whisked me to an island and I had nothing to do with it. But Menelaus is gonna, well, the question is, is he gonna accept that, that lie? Does he believe it? And does it matter? Right, and let's be absolutely clear. It's Aether who's the one who's first saying there was a phantom version of her created that went off with Paris. Your actual wife, she explains, she was completely innocent. She was whisked away and hidden in a remote, concealed place. She went to the Atlas Mountains and lived in my father's house with three daughters, my other two sisters, Salome the Proud, Morgana the Beautiful, and me, Ithra the Young. We took care of you when you were in my father's house, remaining pure for your husband. That's quite a story. Yes, for those of you wondering, I have found no evidence outside of this play that those three figures are <laughs> paired together. Uh, but <laughs> they are, let's say, yes. witchy women. Salome, not necessarily in a literal magical sense. And in fact, we talked about Strauss's take on Salome in a previous opera. And Morgana is a reference to Morgana Le Fay, the perplexing, mysterious, sometimes villainous, sometimes heroic, sometimes just strange figure from Arthurian Legendarium. Well, this revelation from Aithra doesn't completely calm Menelaus down. Hard to calm down. Lotus juice notwithstanding. <laughs> he says, I am the most unfortunate man. I, I need my manhood back. I need to find my wife. 
and there's just phantoms around. How is this going to work itself out? This is terrible, 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 ghastly tidings. And he gets uh, explicitly upset with her every time she brings up anything to do with the trauma that he's experienced. There's a there's a degree to which he just wants to psychologically avoid it. And every time she mentions anything about that day or that event, he warns her. He says, be careful, woman. The threat is Im- implicitly or explicitly of, of violence. That sword that we see him waving about through so much of this opera is a threat to her. Well, not actually a threat to her. She is a powerful sorceress. She is com- she's completely immune to any attack he could throw at her. But he thinks that he has this masculine power. And we see this very typical Strauss Hoffenstall thing about masculine versus feminine power and the ways that men use violence directly or by threat to control women and one another. And the elves pop up again in the story here. (laughs) We have the elves, we have Ithra, we have Menelaus, and Ithra reiterates and re-emphasizes that his wife was in a sleeping state. So she won't remember the details of being at my house, but trust me, my sisters and I took care of her in our father's house. So Menelaus is hearing this news for the first time that the woman he's been keeping company with and trying to kill and blaming for the the dissolution of his marriage is not his wife at all, but merely a phantom. Mm. That's a lot to absorb, but he's taking it surprisingly well. He's open to this idea, maybe because it solves all of his problems. Yeah. And Ithra says, this woman in the next room who's asleep, she's not your wife. The woman you've been with, not your wife, but I could take you to your wife. And she says, I'll, I'll transport you by magic to the castle in Egypt and we'll go wake her up. And he is bewildered, but he is open to this idea. And he yields to the idea that this is, this is what he needs to do and Helen will be restored to him. That is, is his decision to accept the lie or at least investigate it. Yeah. I always think of this kind of thing in literature as Sometimes I want to call it fantasy. Obviously, fantasy means something different in storytelling, but perhaps yeah. wish fulfillment is what this is what this kind of thing sometimes is. You see this in the comic book hero who the reason he is always blowing off his girlfriend is because he's saving the day. <laughs> the fantasy hero who discovers that the reason that their father is absent is because he secretly disappeared to fight an ancient mm-hmm. evil. This is dealing with very real and sad things that happen, that people are unable to live up to their relationships, that parents abandon or are cruel to their children, and tries to find some mm-hmm. meaning in it, some positive spin on it, oftentimes by by concocting a scenario where it where it makes sense. And I think that part of what's happening here is that Hoffenstahl is going directly after that particular tendency in literature. So Menelaus is going to be transported to this pavilion at the foot of the castle. And in a very overt nod to fairy tales, Helen has not only been living in this house, but she's been asleep, like a Sleeping Beauty character. And of course, what could wake her up Mm -hmm. but a kiss? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as as you said, Grant, there's there's definitely not only some some wish fulfillment going on here, but some some very deliberate let's let's reach for the language of fairy tale to solve the story. And presumably and implicitly, the part where she's been asleep has something to do with the fact that she looks mm-hmm. just like she did 
as he remembered her all those years ago. Yeah, even though it's it's been over 10 years since he's seen her, she's she looks exactly the same. She's miraculously preserved. Of course, we know why that is. <laughs> but he goes to see her and she she wakes and they are reunited. Isra once again playing marriage counselor brings them together and it reintroduces them to each other. And Menelaus is so uncertain and so um, conflicted. And Aithra says to him, well, the best medicine for bad memories is just more of this lotus juice. <laughs> She's a bit yeah. of a drug pusher at this point. But, Always. you know, once again, playing into the, the same thing we've been saying that at least for Aithra, her belief is like, the stories, the lies, the, the drugs, whatever you need to do to get yourself to a place where you can live with this reality, it is worth doing. That truth is is really not what's important here. And ultimately, that is is where we, we leave Menelaus and Helen. Right. And Helen, it's really interesting her response to his uncertainty at this point, because he's ashamed that he thought such terrible things of her, that he didn't mm -hmm. protect her. He, In other words, instead of her leaving him he feels he failed her and she tries to say as she's waking up from this state i don't know of anyone who left me i i only slept and i dreamt of my beautiful wonderful caring loving husband and he is ready to accept this explanation mm -hmm. along the lines of what grant was saying you want an explanation that is going to make it all okay yeah. and she says yes you chose me and ithra is seeing everything working out. And she says, well, quick, I'll get a ship and I'll send you home. But they don't want to go home right away. Or Helen, anyway, says, I am worried about going home because everyone thinks poorly of me in Sparta. She says, I'm worried the magic of the new brings fear of the old. Isn't there a place where the two of us could just be together and get reacquainted and be on very strong and solid footing? And Ithra immediately has an answer for that. Yes. Ah, goodness. This opera really needs an act two, because I think if you left it there, I might almost call this a tragedy because it's it's so it's so upsetting in a way that Menelaus wants this perfect fake vision of his wife rather than the, the flawed person who hurt him. That's the heart of the matter here, though. Yeah. As much as I respect Aethra's attempts to prevent Helen from being killed. It is a real diminishment of Helen and Menelaus as characters that only these fake idealized versions of each other can love. And if you left it there, I would be very unsatisfied. So I'm hoping Act Two has a little more to say. I think Hoffmannsthal will not disappoint on those issues. Ithra tells Helena, I will create a magical tent there for the two of you at the foot of the Atlas Mountains, and I will pack only what's necessary in your luggage. And truly, the most important item to have in that chest of essentials in their luggage will be that potion that prevents the memories from returning all the details of the difficult reality. And as we conclude Act One of this opera, Menelaus and Helen are off to their mountain retreat in the tent, and the elves are dancing around laughing and saying, oh, this must not be. This must not be, and they are making fun of everything, and even Ithra gets annoyed, stamps her foot, and asks them, will you be quiet?
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by Kathleen and Grant. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I'm here with Kathleen and Grant. Happy to be here. It's so wonderful to be here. Really glad to have you both. Before we go any further, I'd like to say thank you to the people responsible for creating this beautiful music we're listening to. It's a CD that was recorded in 2002 in New York City with the American Symphony Orchestra under the leadership of Leon Botstein. And the choral work is by the Concert Chorale of New York, led by Gary Thor Wedo. Helena is sung by Deborah Voigt, Menelaus by Carl Tanner, Aithra by Selena Schaefer, The Omniscient Seashell by Jill Grove, and Altair by Christopher Robertson. Altair, who we will meet in the second act. And now, Grant, are you ready for the Opera Helmet Quiz where you bring us up to date on everything that's happened in the first half? Oh, yeah, I got this. Good. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Her lips suck forth my soul, see where it flies. Come, Helen, give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven is in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helen. I will be Paris, and for love of thee, instead of Troy shall Württemberg be sacked, and I will combat with weak Menelaus, and wear thy colors on my plumed crest. Wow, that was lovely, but it didn't feel like a summation of the first act. <laughs> where, where did you find that? That's Christopher Marlowe. Ah, Christopher Marlowe, Shakespearean times. Uh, yes, he would like to think that it was Marlowian times and Shakespeare wrote in Marlowian times, but what are you going to do? Well, it was beautiful, but we actually need to give a summation of what happened in the first act. That was lovely, though. Once upon a time, over 3,000 years ago, the beautiful woman Helen marries the great king of Sparta, Menelaus, but then... The dashing young prince of Troy, Paris, arrives, and Helen runs away with him to his city of Troy. Menelaus gathers a great army and goes, attacks Troy, and after a war lasting ten long years, the city is destroyed. It is sacked. Its men are killed, and its women are taken captive. Among them, Helen. 
who is taken by Menelaus and brought home. Well, not quite home yet. And that brings us to the beginning of our opera. Helen and Menelaus are off the coast of Egypt, and there is in this land of Egypt a powerful sorceress named Aithra. And as with any good Disney princess, she has an animal companion, in this case a seashell, who not only talks, but is in fact omniscient, which is a very handy animal companion to have. Menelaus is conflicted. See, he thinks that he needs to kill Helen for the sake of honor and justice, for all the lives that she took and for his own dishonoring by her. But at the same time, he has no ability to kill her because some part of him is still in love with her and certainly enchanted by her legendary beauty. So they are in this place of danger, but uncertain resolution when Aithra, on the advice of the seashell, proceeds to shipwreck them. Now, uh, the shipwreck doesn't do all that much damage. It does mess up Helen's hair, but that is swiftly resolved. Aithra then proceeds to try to help Helen. For some reason, perhaps because of Aithra's own strained relationship with her paramour, Poseidon. But one way or another, she is going to make everything right. She begins by sending these magical creatures, these elves, to go and bother Menelaus to hound him and confuse him and distract him, while she takes Helen and helps her prepare. She gives Helen a magical potion that takes away Helen's cares and worries. Subsequently, she goes and does the same to Menelaus, giving him this potion, and then she convinces Menelaus that in fact it was a phantom that Paris possessed, and the true Helen was whisked away and hidden in Egypt the entire time, safe, asleep, chaste, and unchanged in her original beauty, just as she was all those years ago. And so, Aithra promises to reunite Helen and Menelaus, and all will be well, even though the price of all being well is deception, lies, and lotus juice. Beautiful, Grant. Thank you. And just to remind us all, at the very end of the act, we are in a magical tent at the base of the Atlas Mountains with a few necessities that Aither has packed, most importantly being that lotus juice, that, that drug of forgetfulness so that they can get past the difficult parts in their marriage. And the second act begins with Helena emerging from the tent, having woken up from spending the night together with her husband. And she sings this beautiful song, honestly, the best known song from this opera that appears on concert stages, Die Zweite Brauchnacht, Second Bridal Night. And she is elated with her, her reunification with her loving husband. <laughs>
This is Opera for Everyone, and Helen and Menelaus have just had their second bridal night. Helen has used every while that she has at her disposal to try and convince her husband that she is innocent of the crimes he has accused her of and that they are being reunited after more than 10 years. But Menelaus, uh, he's actually still not 100% sure that he he buys all of this as much as he wants to. He's asking questions. Yes. So she tries to give him a little bit more drugs, a little more lotus juice, but he is still mistrusting, still kind of pushing back against her. And he sees his sword. We've mentioned his sword is a very important symbol in this, in this opera. He sees his sword and he suddenly is flooded with memories that he cannot resist. Yeah, and keep track of this sword, or try to anyway. It's hard to keep track of the sword. It gets passed around a little bit like a hot potato throughout this opera. The sword and the cup function as contrasting symbols, Mm. where the cup is forgetfulness and, to some extent, uh, a certain kind of death, a certain kind of oblivion. On the other hand, you've got the sword, which is all these memories and naturally the violence inherent in the sword itself. Menelaus is a man of war, and Helen is a woman of seduction. And the sword and the cup bring these themes to the fore and are often very directly contrasted. But Helen wants him to focus on the here and now. She says, focus on this. This is what matters. It's our love. And he can't quite do that. No, the wounds go too deep. So let's hear a little bit of how Menelaus is processing all of this here after he's reunited with Helen in the tent. after spending the first night with his wife after the reunification following the Trojan War, and he's ambivalent. But they don't get to wallow in their feelings for very long because Menelaus will say, I see reddish dust approaching our secluded hideout. (laughs) Who is approaching? And it's an entire army. It's (laughs) a huge host of uh, spearmen and swordsmen and all the rest of it. 
there is a king and a prince and various flunkies, hangers-on. Uh, there are male and female slaves, and it is an entire entourage. Yeah, good work, Ithra, for the little secluded hideout for two. <laughs> well, let, I'd love to listen to a little bit of the music that accompanies this entrance of the king, whose name is Altair, and his entourage. second act of the Egyptian Helen, our reunited couple, Menelaus and Helen, have been joined by an entire army from the desert. And they haven't just arrived, they've rolled out a carpet for Helena. They don't really care about Menelaus at all. He's extraneous. But Altair, the man in charge, is true to form, smitten with Helen. Everyone loves Helen. Yes, this is going to stir up some bad memories as one would expect for her husband this seems to him to be a, a repeat of his the time when Paris came with many gifts and praised Helen's beauty and then stole her away so even though Menelaus has, has had this sort of fresh start with Helen memories of the past continue to intrude and there's an inherent problem with Helen's beauty that it occasions the worst behavior in men and the whole reason that Menelaus is able to gather up the army to go and attack Troy in the first place is that Helen's father had a deal that all of the suitors of Helen had to swear that if she was ever abducted from the man that he gave her to, that all of them would come to that man's defense and mm -hmm. rescue her. It was a, a kind of pact to make sure that no matter who was the winner, that that would be the end of the matter. Of course, it wasn't. And and you see the need for this sort of thing, because not only do we have Altair talking about how beautiful she is and how much he wants her, we have her, his son, and indeed we have the whole host of warriors who are pledging their lives and blood for her sake. Yes, and, and part of why we see, obviously, the destruction of Troy at the behest of Helen's beauty, and of course, probably some other things, but at least that's what Homer says. But also, in many ways, a destruction of the flower of Greek youth as well, because every warrior mm. was competing for her, from Achilles to Agamemnon to Menelaus to Odysseus. They were all competing for the hand of Helen. And thus, when they have to go to Troy, it's not just a couple of the main guys, it's every single main guy. And so we don't really get to see this, um, albeit 
indirectly in other plays such as the Oresteia and some of the the post-Trojan works. But Greece as well is is almost really destroyed in terms of its leadership by Helen's beauty. The Trojan War. Well, let's listen a little bit to all these men who are around Helen at this point. We've got Altair, the guy in charge, who is very boastfully saying, I I will have you command it and all of my slaves will fight in combat for your entertainment. They will slay each other. Their blood will flow. Won't you find that entertaining? (laughs) Fascinating. Uh, Menelaus is going to be kind of off in the corner going, are you serious? Is this happening again? Is this going to be the Trojan War all over again? And the youths echo the fact that they will die for her, for her amusement, not just to save her, just to entertain her. And Daoud, son of Altair, says, yes, we will die on the battlefield for her sake. So that's where he is. And Menelaus has moved from being vaguely sad to saying, Paris, Paris is here again. Here is this phantom of Paris once more reappearing. here they're after Helen again they didn't have a long time together those two but uh, Menelaus is envisioning what happened in the past with Paris 
and it causes him to once again reach for his sword. And I, I do want to say something here about the character of Menelaus, both in in this play, but more specifically in the Iliad. One of the things that's always struck me about him is he's always, he's kind of the also ran. Like he gets Helen, right? <laughs> he gets yeah. Helen, but that's before, we you know, that's a story that we hear in the Iliad as like a flashback. We don't see that happen. Mm -hmm. And so we never really get to see what it is about Menelaus that makes him win Helen. But it's a little surprising because in the Iliad, he is always second. Every, you know, every major yes. male character that we meet in any of ancient Greek, anything is, is usually in some way a fighter because that's the society. So Menelaus, he, he does have proficiency in fighting. He is a fighter, but he's nowhere near as good a fighter or a ruler as his brother, Agamemnon. That's made very clear. And he's nowhere near as good as Achilles, who's the champion of the Greek side. And when mm. he fights and when he talks about his wife, there's always this sort of like, He's always second, you know, like he's never the first of anything. <laughs> and it's never clear why he's married to Helen. Why did he win and not a stronger man or a better ruler? And in that way, I think he's a fascinating figure in, in, in Greek myth because he reminds me of Paris. Paris also has hmm. a more powerful brother. Paris is not as good in battle. Paris is very emotional like Menelaus can be. And in a way, I think that this, the story pairing of Helen and Menelaus and Her Helen and Paris, they are paired together for a reason. Helen is attracted to the same kind of man twice. And it is a man who is never the greatest fighter, never the greatest anything, really, which I find really fascinating. Yeah, Helen has a type, all right. <laughs> so when he reaches for his sword, he's always trying to prove something in a way that I think the other characters, like Achilles, like Hector, are not trying to prove anything. They know who they are by the sword, whereas Menelaus and Paris are always trying to prove their manhood. Right, yes. and Menelaus even says here, a little bit of self-doubt and self-pity. Why do you need such a poor companion? And of course, this play does come out in the era of Freud. <laughs> And uh, not too much needs to be said about the question of swords, except for the uh, delightful taunt that Altair gives. The beautiful one's husband <laughs> shall wield his sword, so it is written, until he confronts a mightier sword. Oh, those men. Men behaving badly and blaming women. Mm, yes, in a nutshell. It, it's a it's a long-standing theme in um, everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Life, <Yeah>. the universe. <laughs> and meanwhile, the youths continue to say, in battle play, we will gladly spill our blood for you. I mean, the frenzy of attention that, that Helen is receiving continues unabated. And Altair is ready to pull out his bigger sword. But they come up with another strategy. You know, why fight Menelaus if you can distract him and spend some time with Helen? And that's the plan. Daoud will help out with that. Yes. So Menelaus is going to go off on a hunt against Helen's wishes that she begs him to stay. But once again, as I said, he's he's looking to prove himself here, and he's looking to show that he can he can bring down his quarry like he brought down Helen. So he leaves for the hunt, leaving Helen alone with Altair, which is perhaps not the best idea. N no. 
But with Menelaus remembering the other time he left his wife to go off on a hunt, that he came home and she had abandoned him, starting the action which puts into motion the events of the Trojan War. We don't have to remember that on our own. He reminds us that that's what happened previously. But nevertheless, he does go off on the hunt with Daud and says to her, forgive me, goddess, this sword and I, we belong together. Because she tries to keep him from doing all this by saying, don't take the sword. Let me, let me hold on to this. And he says, no, it's my sword. I need my sword. And he kisses it. Yeah. Yeah, there's meaning there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, he, he has a, yeah, he has a choice. Mm. Yeah, and he even says before departing, when one goes hunting and returns home to his wife, he can never be sure if he will find her the same. And although Helen doesn't want him to go and asks him not to, he leaves anyway. Yeah, and we're going to hear a little clip of, of her response, her concern for him, which is agitated slightly, and very somber. And she's wondering right here, oh, magical devices can lead us astray. Was Ithra's cup too strong? Was this not the right medicine for Menelaus? concerned about her husband off on the hunt with his sword but she doesn't get to stay alone for very long yes Ithra comes in and sees that that Helen is you know as we mentioned Helen's been thinking about these potions and worrying that giving him the the lotus juice and the, the juice that takes his memories away has been a mistake 
And Icer comes in and says, we packed several vials of potion for you. And, uh -huh. you know, I want to caution you, one of them is a potion of forgetfulness and the other is a potion of remembrance. Right. And she also notices none of the potions have been yes. touched. No more drugs have been administered by Helen. And she said, my silly servant made a mistake. Oops. But, but it's not that. <laughs> Helen does not. Helen is pushing back. She says, I think maybe this drugging stuff has gone too far because yes. even yes. though she has tried to give her husband some drugs that help with this situation, it hasn't helped. He's still remembering mm -hmm. her, her betrayal or her supposed betrayal. And so although Ithra strongly, strongly advises Helen to use the potions, and not to use the recollection potion, but to continue to use the forgetfulness potion, Helen says, no, I want him to remember that there has to be truth between mm -hmm. us, which is, you know, we all cheer for that one a little bit, even as, as, as it seems it might mess up the, the happy ending. Well, and that's getting back to those main ideas that Grant pointed out at the end of the first half about the relationship with a married couple, like how much truth, how much deception, how much are we able to process and get past, even though it's ugly? Now, of course, the Trojan War is kind of a big deal, but that is the point. Yeah, it's just the ordinary thing, but on an incredibly epic scale. And to be clear, we keep mentioning the all the, the death and destruction. Menelaus is a ancient Greek man who is far more concerned about his personal honor than any abstract idea mm -hmm. of justice. Mm, that is true. Well... Ithra is horrified that Helen is showing interest in this mistakenly packed potion of remembrance. And she calls it the drink of hell from which the gods flee. But Helen is really excited that this drink of remembrance is amongst her luggage. Yes, and nothing is nothing is ever placed in one's luggage by, by accident in a story. It's a, it's a bit Chekhov's gun, <laughs> I think, you know, with the potion of recollection on the mm -hmm. table, it's got to be used at some point. Well, and Helen will also say this potion of forgetfulness is the potion that brought me a living death. Like this, this is what made things go wrong. My husband's out there with a sword chasing around after this young man. This is not good. And he didn't even recognize me. He didn't recognize me as his wife in the morning. He was confused about who I am. We need truth. We need recognition. We need honesty. Ithra does not agree. But Helen persists, and she calls for wine, and she mixes in the, the recollection potion, so it will be ready when her husband returns. And she keeps saying, it's not enough, more and more of this dark potion. Right, she has the servants at work, right there. Aithra doesn't leave, but she does recede into the background as Altair shows up. This is his moment. Menelaus is gone, Daoud is gone, and he's got a plan to show Helen his own charms. Yes, he's a bit superfluous, though. Uh, poor man, I hope he knows he's just functioning as a symbol in this play. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain that? Well, just that? like, he, there's no, he's just there as a character to cause certain reactions in our two main characters. He doesn't have a life mm. or, or history of his own and will recede sort of as, as rapidly as he arrived. Although... After some tragedy, he will experience on his own, which we're about to learn about. Well, before we learn about that, let's get a little more sense of his personality and listen to him wooing 
Helen? Sure. Arrow trying to impress her with his greatness, really, is how he plans <laughs> to woo her. I mean, again, not the first time a guy has done that. having their lovely little tete-a-tete, perhaps not lovely for Helen, (laughs) a grand hunt is going on, as we've mentioned, and Menelaos is Mm. hunting the wild animal with Daoud, who's the son of the prince, and we see the, the servants narrate what is going on for us, almost like a Greek chorus, one might say. <laughs> or, or baseball commentators. Exactly, or the peanut gallery, basically. Yeah, it is a blow-by-blow yeah. blow here, right? So they narrate what is happening, and, and unfortunately what is happening is that Menelaos is going to kill, accidentally kill, Daoud in the hunt, which is a very tragic and sudden turn of events. Yes, yes. And when we play this clip in a moment, you will hear at a certain point where they say, Wei Daoud, Wei Daoud, like woe to Daoud. That's when they see he has fallen down dead. Yes. Oh, my God. 
Voltaire, his father has an interesting reaction to this news. <laughs> By which we mean almost no reaction whatsoever. He's like, I've got a lot of sons. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and he says, I've got, I've got sons in my tent and arrows in mm. my quiver, which is implying that he's got this new beautiful woman. He yeah. can make more sons. More sons can happen. Yeah. Yeah. He's feeling it's going to be fine. I've taken care of Menelaus and he's the only one who seems to be calm about this whole situation. Because everyone is grieving this young man who is brought in all the narration of the hunt. The hunt was off stage, but the dead body of Daoud is brought in front and center and placed down for everyone to see the results of all the things that have been going on. Daoud's body is there. His father is relatively unfazed, but Menelaus is concerned that there's a dead body in front of him. How did this get here? Interesting. Helen is repulsed by it. However, her first concern is for her husband, Menelaus. And to, you know, get a hold of that sword so no more of this stuff happens. Yes. Yes, there's, there's the sword moving, changing hands again. And, and Menelaus is kind of in a daze. The, the, this weapon here, why do I have it? And he lets her take it. Yes, and, and Helen, being the smartest one in the room, always says exactly the right thing. She says, you wish that in this boy, Paris of Troy should once again die. So she, she sees it immediately that he was not trying to kill Daoud, that he was trying to run down Paris again, the phantom he keeps chasing. Yes. Yes. And in his confusion, he is, to a certain extent, babbling somewhat incoherently and seems to be under the impression that this Helen, who he sees now, is only the vision of Helen, only the wraith. The real Helen is dead and gone, and he wishes to be with her because all of this has gone so wrong for him that he no longer wants to live in this, in this place. He's longing for death to be with his true wife. Yes. And, and so Helen responds by saying, okay, well, it's definitely time for this potion of recollection. Um, and she's mixing the wine and Ithra's trying to stop her saying it's not time yet. He's not ready. But she knows, Helen knows that he has to remember, he has to know, or he is, is going to be lost to her. So she gives him this potion to make him remember. And he does take it, but not because he thinks he's going to be drugged again, because he thinks it's going to kill him. Yeah, he wants to die and, and join his wife in death. But when he takes the potion, however, he, he, the scales fall from his eyes and he sees that she is his real, true, and living wife. Well, Altair is not going to take this happily. No, and he wants to separate the two of them. He's going to use a, a big show of force. And his slaves say, we're going to invite you to this feast, but really they have some, some tricks up their sleeves. And Ithra, who sees that this is dangerous, says we need to have our own army appear because this is about to, to become a fight. You need to have the bigger sword. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or the bigger sorceress in this instance. She's a she's a quite a deus ex machina, if I may say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's listen to a clip of all of this activity.
we're coming up to the exciting conclusion of Richard Strauss's The Egyptian Helen. We've just heard from Helen herself and Aitra and the slaves of Altar, the slaves of that very bombastic, self-entitled man who thinks Helen should be his. And it's really interesting. A description that could describe 98% of the men in this universe. Hmm. <laughs> They're not all as powerful as he is, but they all have the same basic desires and inclinations. I mean, you know, it's Strauss, so like, you should not expect all that many good guy men guys. But there's there's a lot of just like, the women are the good ones in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Ithra, you know, you could kind of go either way with your thoughts about her, but the story's not over yet. When the slaves, when that choral piece came in and the slaves were singing, they were saying, woe to the conquered who are soaked with tears, woe to those excluded from the feast of life. Which is interesting because we keep talking about feasts in this show at this point, and cups for that matter. But Altair says one of the ways he's going to cement his claim on Helen is to have a feast. Helen, when she's preparing that drink of remembrance to give to her husband, she refers to it as this is Helen's feast. And now we've got the slaves saying, woe to those excluded from the feast of life. For that matter, when Menelaus and Paris are very briefly about to settle the Trojan War by a honorable one-on-one combat, an idea you'd think they would have had before the 10th year, (laughs) they have a big feast as a way of solemnizing that vow. Feasts, feasts. Well, Menelaus is ready to accept Helen's feast. In fact, he says, when the drink runs through my veins, I will be a dead man. And in the, in the Euripides, the reason why they don't kill him is that he's a, he's a guest, right? He's partaken of the, yeah. the food and drink, and therefore he yeah. like, can't be slain even though they know he's a criminal. Mm. Yeah, if you eat the salt of the table, right, yeah. they can't slay you in the house. And now as Helen is handing him the drink, he once again proclaims, give me this drink of death or I die by the sword. There we are with the cup and the sword again. And she offers him the drink and thinks a bit about being husband and wife again. The difference between the night they spent together and all those terrible nights they spent apart. And when he empties the cup dry, He sees someone standing in front of him and he grabs his sword. Who are you? Who is this standing before me? But of course it's Helen. And this this who stands before me is echoing a whole bunch of the things that we've seen here and elsewhere. This, This question of confused identity, but also of probing, of establishing relationship. Helen in the Odyssey is introduced by saying, who does this man say he is? And she already knows who he is, Hmm. but is inquiring as to the nature of this strange visitor, Telemachus. And we see this even more in the Odyssey. And and honestly, in a lot of these post-Trojan War welcome home myths is the question is who recognizes the person who returns after so many years? You know, it's like the the recognition (laughs) test is a loyalty test, really. Yes. And, And the reality, of course, is None of these people are the same people who they were mm-hmm. 10 years ago, 20 years ago in Odysseus's case. 
experience changes people. War changes people dramatically, and tragedy and terror leave their marks and their scars. I also think the scene reminds me a lot of the Romeo and Juliet finale with the. Uh, are there spoilers in Shakespeare? Uh, with the. <laughs> I don't. I think everyone's had enough time if they wish to have seen it. <laughs> Only if it's an obscure Shakespeare. Okay. Okay. So Romeo and Juliet. Spoiler alert: They die at the end, and and there's this sword or dagger, I suppose and cup or vial in that case and you've got the same sort of thing the death by blade or death by poison Mm. well before he answers his own question who is this before me Ithra is bringing some news she says Helen take care stay alive they are bringing your child what that child Hermione who has been absent because we don't want to introduce her to Helen, give her a bad example. Yeah, Ithra arranged this. She sent sea creatures who are her helpers to retrieve Hermione and bring Hermione to her mother and father. And Menelaus throws his sword away. And it's this kind of Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi toss the sword away <laughs> moment. And he replaces it with a gesture of, of reaching out for her. Uh, which, again, we've seen that that kind of contrast between the gesture of reaching out with a sword and reaching out for one's lover or one's beloved, in this case. And so he is he is transported, and he tosses away the blade of vengeance, at least for this moment. I think, importantly, for the anti-war message that we get from the source material, Euripides, as we mentioned earlier, is very anti-war, and he uses his plays including this one to forward that message. But also, I mean, the echo I hear, Grant, this may seem familiar to you as well, is beating your swords into plowshares. The yeah. idea of instead yes. of the sword, we have fertility, fecundity. We have the child return. We have her role as a mother reestablished. Yes. And I think in many ways, Euripides would not want us to miss that message, and neither would Strauss. Well, Strauss certainly doesn't. He gives a soaring romantic piece to Menelaus after he talks about seeing his wife as no man has ever seen, eternally chosen by your glance, fully married. And significantly, it's recognizing what is wrong of her. She is glorious and she is unfaithful. Both of these things the same. Mm -hmm. Beloved in spite of all the pain. And Ithra in this moment seems to kind of understand for the first time here without suffering how would you exist both glorious creatures without the unfaithful ever the same ever new and this to me is the soul of the opera is that the pain and the faults and the flaws are part of who we are and to love it all means to love over above and in spite of those well grant i think once again Hoffmannsthal would have given you high marks for getting what he's putting down because he wrote about life's great enigma or mystery. The real mystery, he wrote, of nature is creative force. Performance is numbness and death. Whoever wants to live must surpass himself, must transform himself. He has to forget. And yet all human merit is linked with performance, unforgetfulness, constancy so it is this contrast where you have to keep developing and changing and you need remembrance but you also need to be able to let go some of the past 
ever the same, ever new. And that line is repeated again and again by various characters here towards the end. And we have this sweeping, beautiful, romantic song from Menelaus about being in love with his wife. And, well, I'm just going to let you listen.
Well, all of this wonderful reconnection between husband and wife with Ithra approving, daughter's on the way, there's going to be one more tiny snag. Because the one thing that hasn't yet been resolved is the cycle of violence Mm. incited by Helen's beauty. They need somehow to escape the constant violence that follows her where she goes. And so there is a confrontation. Altair and his slaves with daggers come on in, and we see violence on full display. The woman is mine, he yells. (laughs) Put the man in chains. He broke the law of hospitality. Away with him! Of course, the only thing that I think Hoffmannsthal slash Euripides is telling us can stop this cycle of violence is to appeal to the gods, ultimately, that you really need Mm -hmm. that deus ex machina. In Euripides, Castor and Pollux, who are the deified twin brothers of Helen, stop the the murder at the end of the play. And then in this opera, obviously, we, we get the army of Poseidon does Ithra's bidding and, and appears to to stop the army of the suitor from, from taking Helen and Menelaus away from each other. But that really is the ending that both plays seem to turn to. The only force that is greater than Helen's beauty is the wisdom of the gods. Well, Kathleen, Grant, this is a, a an opera that's hard to get your hands on. It's hard to find any sort of visual representation so if you happen to see it listeners in any location where you might have a chance to watch it i recommend it strongly hoffmannstahl thought this was his best libretto ever and it was his well sort of second to last or last completed one arabella he he didn't fully complete before he died but hoffmannstahl very very much liked this story and this show because it made so many of the points that he cared about. Strauss as well. I mean, it is the third of these three operas we call them, the marriage operas. Kathleen Grant, thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Opera for Everyone. I always appreciate your help. It's been such a delight. Always happy to be here.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined by Kathleen and Grant. If you enjoyed the show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone.